Hi, everyone. We're going to post a recording, one of my favorite recordings we did over the last few years when we invited Ringo Tunkel Rinpoche down to give a talk about guru principle and devotion. I found this talk really inspiring, and let me read a little bit of the description. During this session, Ringu Toko Rinpoche discusses how to cultivate a discerning attitude to avoid the potential pitfalls of devotion and how mindfulness, awareness, meditation plays a central role in expressing our intelligent heart. We're going to hear from Matt DeRodio in a minute, who has a pretty close friendship with Ringu Toko Rinpoche, about why we invited him down and why we asked him to give this particular talk, which was titled Intelligent Heart, Devotion in the Buddhist Path. So it had to do, it was when all the, uh, 2019, when things were falling apart within Sogyo Rinpoche's community, and then this, you know, with the, the Shambhala community, and people were kind of like, you know, there was a lot of disruption. People were very brokenhearted and feeling they were committed. And, you know, that's one of the heartbreaking parts. I mean, how does one, and this is the, the important part, you make a commitment, but it's not to some kind of God or some kind of person. This person is representing an aspect of you. So there's, there has to be an element of intelligence, critical thinking, but it all leads to devotion. And what is genuine devotion in this path? If one is having some understanding of the principle of the bond, which is called in Sanskrit samaya, but the fundamental samaya really is is to one's awakening, to one's waking up. But as one understands what that teacher is representing and and clarifying for you, and being a mirror for your own awakened mind. Intelligence is part of that. So in the final analysis, devotion really is about your awareness and your connection on how that extends further into the world. So that's you know how that, uh, I wanted him to speak to that because a lot of people were so disheartened. Yeah. You know, What's this, what the hell is this whole thing about guru principle? You know, we don't need it. You know, this is an archaic system. And, you know, uh, and some of, some of the criticism is right, is correct. Thank you very much. And uh, uh, I would like to thank for inviting me here and uh, that all of you could uh, spend this evening with me here. Uh, devotion, uh, he gives uh, a nice uh, uh, title. What is it called? Intelligent Heart. Intelligent Heart. <laughs> <laughs> um, devotion is uh, uh, regarded as 
a very important uh, important aspect. Uh, I think in many in many different uh, spiritual traditions. Uh, and it has a, a place in Buddhism also. Uh, but uh, in Buddhism, uh, it's described, it's um, understood a little bit um, differently. It is um, uh, very clearly uh, explained uh, in three stages. First is uh, uh, inspiration. Inspiration is um, the Tibetan word for that is tangwa. Uh, that means that. Uh, uh, whether it's a, a book that we are reading or a kind of a, a teaching that you listen to or sometimes a person that you meet, uh, whatever, which actually inspires you. Uh, which you feel is uh, is correct, where you can kind of uh, uh, where there is a kind of uh, feeling that this is uh, this is right or this is truth or you know that you can connect with. Uh, so that inspires you. There's something that is this that touches you at your core, in your heart. Um, that's called. <laughs> that's my watch talking. <laughs> and uh, that's. A kind of devotion. That's the, that's the beginning of a devotion. Uh, that inspires you. And this inspiration is important because, you know, uh, something that rings true, that touches your heart, that you feel is, um, is genuine. That is the, you know, that's the first devotion. But this devotion uh, can be 
not always uh, what can you say reliable you can be touched by lots of different things wrongly also sometimes um, so therefore you know uh, it's a good thing it's an important thing uh, it's a it's a, it's the beginning of a of a true devotion but it's not completely reliable because you know uh, you can be inspired by many different things in different situations and things like that this leads to you know the second <coughs> level of devotion and that's what we call as aspiration now you are touched or you are inspired uh, you feel that this you know i would like to um, explore this i would like to uh, try to um, actualize this situation or i would like to uh, become or re- make myself kind of uh, become like that situation whether it's a person then you want to become like that person whether it's a teaching you want to actualize that experience and that is called aspiration and you actually try to uh, go a little bit more uh, deeper into that that is the second kind of devotion and uh, here uh, it's not just inspired but you also uh, do some actual uh, experiment maybe practice or you know uh, go deeper into this uh, that you are inspired with and try to find look at it a little bit more closely uh, become a little bit more um more more intimate you can say if you like mm. and that's called the aspiration and most of the the devotion practices whether it's a teaching or whatever is in this level aspiration and then you kind of um try to learn that try to understand that uh, and then that uh that supposed to lead you to the third kind of devotion which is what we call certainty Uh, now this certainty is uh, you know uh, coming out of 
actually experimenting, training, going deeper into that. And then you kind of, uh, uh, through your investigation, through your practice, through your learning, through your, you know, working on it, you find a very clear certainty that this is actually the way it is. It is there is nothing other than that. This is the truth. This is uh, the right thing. And uh, when you have that certainty. That's what we call the, the true devotion. And uh, so that true devotion is not so easy. It's, it's quite difficult. Uh, and therefore devotion is not, not loyalty. Uh, because many times People take devotion as a little bit like a loyalty, you know. I'm devoted to this. I'm devoted to this person. means like I just, you know, I, I am kind of committed. Uh, this is not necessarily what we think about the true devotion that we talk about in Tibetan Tepa. Mm. And uh, so when, you know, that certainty kind of devotion is always regarded as a very important foundation. Not only actually the essence, not only foundation that you kind of start with, but essence of the practice. Because when you have that, then... That's it, you know. Like uh, there's a story that uh, when Gampopa, uh, the Gampopa was the, uh, the kind of the most important lineage holder of Melarepa, you know, this uh, the most uh, renowned Tibetan uh, yogi uh, called Melarepa. Um, so Gambhava went to see Melarepa and he, he felt very inspired by him. Um, when he first heard the name of Melarepa, he felt so inspired that he kind of left there without able to move for a couple of minutes. And then he had this strong intention that he must find this person and meet him and uh, receive teachings from him. So he went through lots of he went through lots of difficulties to find him. Uh, maybe some of you know this story, how he heard about Milarepa. Uh, you know this story? No? 
<laughs> Some people don't know, so I should tell. Gampopa at that time was um, uh, a Katampa student, and he was, you know, uh, following the Katampa tradition. He had many masters. He studied very well. He was very. He already became very learned. He was already learned before he was a very learned physician. Um, and then uh, he used to have a kind of a repeated a dream uh, that one green-colored yogi uh, comes and bless him and goes away. And then he went to his teacher and said that, you know, I have this repeated dream that one green-colored yogi comes and bless me and goes away. What is this? And his teacher said, I don't know, but it could be an obstacle. So you should do a retreat on um, Miowa. There's a practice called Miowa Achala which is supposed to be good at, um, you know, getting rid of uh, obstacles of your meditation. So you should do uh, a retreat on this. So he did. He he found a small retreat, uh, kind of a cabin outside the monastery, a little bit on the top of the mountain. And then he was doing retreat there. And every evening, he used to go for a walk around the, the monastery. And on that path, below a hanging rock, there was three uh, beggars uh, sleeping. And then one night, these three beggars were kind of talking, you know, just just talking, chatting. And one beggar was saying that, I wish tomorrow a rich sponsor comes to the monastery and he offers a very nice soup, a very thick soup with lots of meat in it and a very big piece of meat with lots of fat may fall into my cup. So when he was saying this, the next beggar was saying, you know, if you make a wish, can't you make it a little bit better than that? <laughs> <laughs> You are a man, you are a human being, and you know, you can't, your wish can't go a little bit better than that. Just a cup of nice soup, you know. And then uh, he said, But how, what would you wish? What kind of bigger and higher wish you have? 
He said, you know, the wish you can wish anything, you know, that's it's not necessary that you have to wish something small. I would wish to be like the king of Tibet, you know, like uh, who can, you know, conquer many countries and you know, he's so powerful and so so strong and so rich and so brave and so nice and you know why can't we wish like that? You know, it's just a wish anyway. And then the eldest one was saying that, please don't talk like this. You know, wishing for a cup of soup and things like that, because you know, usually at this time that retreatant is walking around this place, and if he hears, he would be laughing at us. And at that time, he was actually walking that way, and he could hear everything. And then he said that, if you really have to wish something, I would wish even better than the king of Tibet. And they said, what is better than king of Tibet? He said, I could wish to be like Milarepa. Said, said, what is Milarepa? Milarepa is somebody who is, you know, totally free from all kind of uh, problems. Uh, He doesn't need any food to eat. He doesn't need any clothes to wear. He can can stay uh, highest snow mountains without even, you know, just with a little bit of a cotton shawl. He doesn't need any food. He can fly from one mountain to another. He's totally enlightened. Uh, He's got rid of all the problems forever. I could wish something like that. And that's better than the king of Tibet. So this, during this discussion, Gampapa was listening. And then when he heard the name Milarepa, he felt so inspired, like we were talking about. And so he went home, made a soup exactly the way they were talking about. (laughs) And this next morning he came and invited them to his cabin and said, you know, I'm very sorry, but I heard what you were discussing last night. <laughs> and we, I have this soup, so please come and have some soup with me. So they went there, they had soup. And then he said, you know, I really want to find this Milarepa. Where is he? So if you can find, if you can guide me to that person, I will be, you know, very grateful and I'll pay you whatever you need. So that's how he came to meet Milarepa. And he was with Milarepa for not very long time, actually. He was there and he, he got all the teachings, he practiced them, he got the you know, signs, results, and things like that. And then uh, one day, his, Milarepa told him that, Now I have given you all the teachings. And whatever I know, I 
taught you. So it's not necessary that you have to hang around here. You go back to central Tibet because, you know, Milarepa was in the kind of border of uh, Nepal or India and Tibet around the place where Mount Kailash, you know, very far from central Tibet. So he said, you go back to central Tibet and there is a there is a mountain called Gambo, Gambodar. So you just go there, you practice there, you st- practice and stay there. And then he said that, you know, you have lots of devotion to me. Now, you trust me, you have received my teachings, you really, you know, have very strong devotion to me. But when you keep on practicing, then at a certain time you will experience that, you know, that your teacher, your old father, Milarepa, me, is nothing other than the Buddha. You will experience this deeply from your heart and you will know. When that experience comes, that's then the the true devotion, highest form of devotion. Because that only comes when you actually experience the true teaching that I've given you. And when that happens, then you can also teach. You can teach, you can share the teachings that I've given you, not before. So, you know, this happened. You know. He thought that time that, you know, my devotion is so strong to Milarepa. It was there right from the beginning when I heard his name. So it can't become better, but actually it became better, stronger, clearer, you know, completely certain, and things like that. So therefore, you know, that's the, that's the real certainty, complete devotion. That's why devotion becomes important, because devotion is a practice. The more you understand the teachings, the stronger your devotion becomes. So therefore, it's very important to understand that, you know, when we talk about devotion or the relationship between the teacher and the student, the relationship between the teacher and the student is the teaching. Nothing else. Teaching is the only connection between the teacher and the student. And practicing the teaching, developing the experience of that teaching in yourself is the act of devotion. Not anything else. 
I think this is something very important to understand. You know. uh, otherwise, you know, uh, you kind of uh, you don't know what what to do with devotion. And this is very important to know what to do with devotion or inspiration or whatever. That it is, you know, the, the, the relationship with the teacher and the student is the teaching. And then what we have to do is the practice of the teaching. It's why it's always said that the best offering a student can do to the teacher or the best way the student can please the teacher is practice. This is the, the understanding, this is the main understanding, and that's, I think it's very important. Now, you know, therefore, you know, the f- most important thing, uh, it's very, very important. It actually starts with this in most of the Vajrayana teachings, how to examine your teacher. Uh, teacher becomes important because you know the main reason why uh, we have not uh, become free from suffering and we have not become wise or we have not transformed ourselves we have not learned how to be you know, free from all kind of problems and difficulties is because, not because we don't want to. Everybody wants to be free from problems and suffering and pain. Everybody wants to have the, you know, have to attain the highest form of happiness and joy and liberation. And they try their best, everybody. That's why we are so busy. <laughs> but it's because we don't know how to. You know? So therefore, if there is somebody who can show us how to do that, that's very, very important. We need somebody who can guide us, who can uh, teach us, who can help us to work on ourselves, to bring wisdom, to develop our positive qualities, to awaken ourselves. You know, it's very, very important. Because without that, we couldn't do it. But the problem is, we need to have a teacher or a guide 
who actually knows how to do it. If you get a wrong one, it doesn't work. Yeah. It could actually even mislead us. Getting a wrong teacher and then totally relying on that wrong teacher is the worst thing that can happen to us. There's the story of, you know, um, Angulimala, most of you have heard. Uh, He originally was a very bright student, actually the brightest of the whole group. Very bright, very intelligent, very strong, very hard-working, you know. But then somehow, I wouldn't go into the details, he annoyed his teacher. And teacher became very, you know, very upset with him. But he, he, he didn't want, he couldn't, you know, he couldn't um, punish him because he was too good. So he misled him. He said, you know, I'll show you, give you the most secret teaching. The most secret teaching is that if you kill uh, people uh, and uh, cut their small fingers and make a mala of that. If you kill one thousand persons and make a, you know, mala of that, their little fingers. If you succeed to do that, then you will become. Very great, something like that. Whatever, I don't know, but you will achieve it. Whatever you want. So because he had some devotion or some trust in his teacher, so he just went and started killing people. And because he was so strong and he was so... um, so intelligent, and so he, he could, you know, the army of the whole kingdom couldn't, couldn't get him. You know. So he became a very, you know, like a big terrorist thing. It's a terror. So he, you know, nobody could come and go in that area. So he keep on killing people and cutting this little finger and, you know, making a mala and, then he had 999. Now he needed just one more. And he couldn't get anybody because everybody was, nobody was coming out of their place and everything was secured by the army and things. Then he was thinking, now what can I do? Because I can't find anybody. Then he thought, Maybe there's one person who will not run away from me, and that's my mother. I'll go and kill her and get her little finger. And he was going that way, 
And then he found Buddha. Buddha was walking in front of him. He was overjoyed. Oh, now I don't have to kill my mother. I can kill this stupid monk. So he ran after Buddha. And Buddha was walking quite slowly. And he was really running, and he was a very good runner. But he couldn't catch him. And after some time, he had to say, Hey, stop! And Buddha stopped and turned back slowly and said, I stopped long time ago. You are the one who is not stopping. He got a little shocked because nobody dared to say something like that to him like that. And then he had discussion with Buddha. He said, I'm going to kill you. You know who am I? I'm Angulimala. He didn't see any fear in Buddha's eyes. And Buddha said, Why do you kill? He said, Well, if I get one more thing, I will get, I don't know what, some kind of a moksha or whatever. And Buddha cut a leaf from the tree that's growing next to him and says, Please put this back on the tree. He said, How can I put it back on the tree? You have already cut it. So you can't put it back? He says, No. Can you can you give back the life that you have taken? No, I have I cannot. Then how can you take a life that you cannot give? So he they start to talk, and then after some time, he realized that he was totally misguided. And then he said to Buddha, Please, I want to follow you. And uh, Buddha said, Okay, you become my monk, and you stop doing these negative things, and then. You can change. So he did that, and then he became. So therefore, you know, this is uh, important: is to have right kind of a a good, uh, a genuine uh, teacher. And that is something not always easy to, you know. Um, Sometimes you will find people saying, I'm enlightened. I got enlightened in the Himalayas. I've seen some person like that. But when I hear somebody saying, I'm enlightened, I know he's not enlightened. (laughs) (laughs) 
Sometimes other people say he's enlightened. You don't know, you know. I don't know who is enlightened, who is not enlightened, because I'm not enlightened. So I can't say, but you know. Uh, you can a little bit, I think, see somebody is not enlightened. Because if somebody has even a little bit of realization, they wouldn't have anger and hatred. They wouldn't have, you know, attachment and uh, and greed. And they wouldn't have jealousy. They wouldn't have arrogance and pride. They wouldn't have ignorance. So if you find somebody with this, you can be hundred percent sure that he is not in line. Yeah? But it is not always necessary that if that person is not enlightened, he or she cannot be a good teacher. Gampapa says, you know, that uh, ordinary people, unenlightened people, you know, uh, can be teachers and good teachers also. Because, of course, if you can find a very enlightened, great bodhisattva teacher, that's, that's, that's great, but, you know, it's not always easy. And we don't even know. But if we have a teacher who is ordinary, who is just, you know, a um, samsaric person, but if he or she is genuinely practicing Dharma and living what he or she is teaching, then it's okay to learn the Dharma from that person or persons. So I like teachers who say clearly that they are not enlightened. If somebody says he's enlightened, then you the he pretends to be enlightened. I feel I don't feel that confident. You know. But then, you know, what we need to do. This is, I think, very important uh, because the main thing that we need to learn is the teaching. So therefore, the more we learn the teaching and the more we actually use it on ourselves, the more we actually get the benefit of these teachings, the more devotion necessarily goes.
grows in us. Not only towards the teacher, but also towards the teaching. And if that kind of devotion grows, then it's, it, it doesn't make any difference whether the teacher is enlightened or not enlightened. Yeah? So that's, the, I think, the most important thing. You know? um, sometimes people I see are always kind of, where is my teacher? You know, who is my teacher? You know, when is he coming? You know, the, I've, I've heard people saying this, even asking me, you know, who is my teacher, when can I find, where can I find my teacher? You know, as if there is one assigned to you, you know, by the kind of almighty or something like that. Uh, I don't think it's like that, you know. Uh, I don't, feel that it's like, I need to do like that, you know. I have been very fortunate to have uh, many great teachers, but it happened, not because I... <laughs> but, you know, it's not that, you know, some of the teachers, some of my teachers who have been, you know, is not, who doesn't have that kind of... Um, you know, the great kind of um, high, um, or can you say, high st- status, you know, um, Turku, Rinpoche, you know, kind of His Holiness, um, or His Excellency, those kind of, nothing of this, were my best teachers, you know. It's not necessary. It's not necessary to be uh, His Holiness. It is not necessary to be His Eminence. It's not necessary to be the, you know, reincarnation of 10th, 12th, 19th, 20th. (laughs) You know, it just needs to be a person who actually knows the teaching and genuinely practicing that. You know? And I think this is something which is not so, so difficult to, to find out whether that person really studied, really knows the subject, and a little bit lives by those, you know. And then it's okay to receive teachings. And, and I believe that I need to receive teachings from as many teachers as possible. Because that's what I did. Not necessarily by choice, but by circumstances. You know. At that time, when I first came out of Tibet, you know, there was no, like, there was no shedha. There was no shedha. There was not even books, you know. Uh, But there were lots of masters. So I just went to the master who was nearest to me (laughs) and asked for his teaching. And I started with Nyingma teachers. I 
Campos, I started with Sakya Campos, I started with Kaju, I started with Geluk. And I must say this as strongly and clearly as possible. I never got confused because of that. I don't think anybody will get confused because of that. If somebody tells you that you cannot take teachings from more than one person, otherwise you will be confused, they are telling lies. This is what I feel. You know? Because it's the same teaching, teaching of the Buddha. You know? And this is also, I think, very important that Sometimes people think that, you know, one teacher is giving a teaching. It's his teaching. It's not his teaching. It's the teaching of the Buddha. You know. It's not that person's teaching. This is the teaching coming from a lineage, teaching of the Buddha, teaching of the, you know. So therefore, it's... Therefore, it's not different, it's same. Of course, everybody would express in a slightly different way. Because you cannot, you know, if I say something, if he says some, the same thing, we would say it in a slightly different way, because we are different. Yeah. But there's nothing really different, you know. Sometimes it's even better. Because one teacher gives an explanation of same thing. And then another teacher explained the same thing in his own way. Most of the time, it makes it more clearer because it's slightly different way of saying and slightly different approach, but the same thing. So it makes it much more clearer and better, never confusing. So therefore, you know, when this is understood, I think then you, you don't have problem with this uh, teacher-student thing, which seems to be a big problem in the West. You know, they always ask, you know, what about teacher-student relation? You know, I think it's very important to, to really understand this very clearly, you know. Um, and it is also, you know, um, and the focus on the teaching, not on the teacher too much, is, I think, important also. Because what Buddha said, he said, rely on the Dharma, not on the personality. Actually, when Buddha was passing away, people asked, who is your regent? Who is your, you know, who is that person that you give the charge of, you know, who should we rely on after you have gone? He says, nobody. Rely on my dharma rely on the Sangha, no one person. 
So therefore, you know, dharma and sangha became very important. Not one person. I think that is also very important to understand. You know, of course, teachers are important. You know, especially if that teacher is a very genuine teacher. It's been very helpful and very kind and very, you know, useful to you. You would feel very devoted. You will feel very, you know, great gratitude and, you know, you feel very connected and very strong, kind of. And that's very good. That's very, very good. But it's also important to understand that the main thing is not the personality of the teacher, but the teaching. You know? And also, you know, I think it is important to understand this, maybe, I feel, that anybody, you know, have anybody can have also obstacles you know whether they are teachers actually people who have a little bit more higher level of practice get more obstacles you know an obstacle is sometimes called mara in a Sanskrit word called Mara. You know Mara? It is in the Buddha when he was about to get enlightened. The Maras came was coming trying to obstruct him, no? In the in the story of Buddha. He was supposed to get enlightened at the dawn of that night, you know, on the full moon night of this Vesak. Uh, and in that first part of the night the Maras came and trying to obstruct him first with you know lots of nice dancing girls and then lots of you know uh, threatening uh, demons and things like that that's that's kind of these are symbolic maybe but you know so even at that stage the Maras happened so therefore, the maras can happen, the obstacles can happen to anybody. And I think it is also important to understand these obstacles, the maras, whether it's happening to yourself, whether it's happening to your teacher, or whether it's happening to your sangha. These maras very important to recognize. I think you should read my book on Maras. <laughs> I'm trying to advertise it. <laughs> you have seen that book that I. Um, it's not my book actually. It's a, it's a book by Paturumpuche on the Maras. I once taught it, and then some of my students tried to kind of. Uh, what to call it, transcribe it and made it into a book. 
I have lots of books. I'm a great writer. But I, <laughs> but I didn't write anything. <laughs> there are general maras and specific maras. You know, four general maras. Then specific maras. You know, outer maras. Six outer maras. Six inner maras. Six secret maras. Six specially secret maras. <laughs> It'll be interesting. <laughs> I think it's important to understand, you know. You can, you can have, people can have uh, obstacles. And uh, so therefore, you know, uh, sometimes it is, uh, it's, um, and when these maras happen, or you have obstacles, uh, you know, you need to recognize that these are obstacles happening, and then you have to try to um, use remedies for that, try to get out of that, you know. And if somebody, whether it's your uh, your student, or your, your teacher, or your 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 friend, going through these matters, you should also try to help them. Most important is is compassion and trying to help. You know, not to denounce, you know, not to punish. You, know. you have to help. You know, if there is a problem with some of your close people, whether it's your friend or your student, your teacher, you need to, you need to help them to become better. That's how you can strengthen your own practice, that's you can, how you can strengthen the Sangha, that's how you can strengthen and help your students. It's not always easy, of course, but I think that's that's the main thing. That's the important thing. Uh, and sometimes, you know, when you have maras, everything goes well. Yeah, also. Uh, there's, there's a story. <clears throat> there's a story of two evil spirits. Maybe I told you this story. It's my favorite story. (laughs) There are two, there are many, you know, evil spirits, but there were two special ones. One is called Zen, and another called Jalpo. And the Zen is very quick, very swift, you know. It just gives you a heart attack or stroke or something like that. It just gives you an accident. The Jalpa is more, more subtle. You know. So these two people met on a pass. And then, you know, 
Jalpa said, you know, I'm the best. And the gents, I'm the best. And then, then they decide to make a contest. Who can harm people the best way? <laughs> and so they, were, they tried to find some targets, you know, some, what you call it? Yeah. And they looked around and they saw two lamas in two caves in this you know, kind of solitude place. And they selected a lama each. And the Zen went, in like a lightning it went, and pushed the lama, his lama, over the cliff. The lama fell down, died. He come back in one second and says, look, I've done it, you know. How good I am, you know. And Jalpa said, oh, you know, did you actually harm him or help him? <laughs> you know, look what's happening to his consciousness. And his consciousness was going to Devachen, you know, to the, to <laughs> to the Buddha realm. He says, did you really harm me? You know, you just send him directly to the... <laughs> <laughs> to the divine place, you know. And then he was a little bit shocked. Then how do you do it? He said, wait and see. You know, wait and see. So his lama became very, you know, everything he did became very successful. You know? Anybody came for him to bless become healed, you know. Anything he did become successful, you know. Even the, the rice or the, the barley he threw uh, grew up with very big, you know, what you call it, ears. You know. And, you know, he became so popular and so, you know, so many students, so many... Everybody was very kind of impressed by him and devoted. So he became too busy. He became too, you know, too kind of, um, too important. So he couldn't stay in the cave. He had to go down to the, to the village. And then he became richer and richer and he had lots of things and, and then he fell in love with a girl, a nice, very beautiful girl. And then his business grew and grew and grew. And then he had lots of, you know, activities. And so and lots of worldly things. And then he met some enemies here and enemies there. And, you know, some people were jealous with him. Some people were angry with him. And so, then there were lots of kind of descent and, you know, um, fightings and things like that. And one day, somebody killed him. And he died. There was no dharma in him, all forgotten and finished. So, he became a slave to this Jalpo. And then he called his friend Zen and says, this is how you do it.
Yeah? <laughs> so therefore, you know, it's, um, it's very important to, to learn, to understand what's going on in you. you know? um, anybody can become, have obstacles and then become kind of corrupted. So therefore, you know, the devotion, actually devotion, the true devotion is the very, you know, is, is, is in a way cure for these, you know, obstacles also. You know, when you have obstacles, then if you can generate a pure devotion and, and pray from your heart, it could actually clear because devotion is an emotion which is, you know, which is um, not a negative emotion, which is a positive emotion, but a clear emotion, you know. And it is a humble and, you know, which is not... uh, Egoistic, or which is not uh, arrogant or pride kind of thing, but very you know genuine humi with lots of humility and open heart. So that kind of devotion is regarded as a very good um, method or means of meditation. There are two things, two states of mind, which are very good for, for genuine meditation. Devotion and compassion. You know. if, you, if you are in a devotion state of mind, and a compassion state of mind, and then you, you really allow your mind to be in its natural state, you can... It's said that it's it's very easy to actually overcome all your, you know, obstacles and problems, and uh, and become find the kind of uh, right balance. So therefore, you know, we do this guru yoga thing. Now again. It's very important to understand that guru and guru yoga are two different things. Yeah? I think sometimes people also misunderstand, mix this up. Guru yoga and guru. Because guru yoga is a, is a practice, it's a meditation. Um, a way to bring you know, your devotion by, you know, by kind of, uh, uh, by visualizing or by, by uh, kind of uh, using the guru as a catalyst, but making it much more perfect. Using the, the your your guru, but 
making it much more perfect. You use your guru for guru yoga because, you know, first it's very important to understand that your guru is appointed or selected by you, nobody else. You know? If somebody comes and says, I'm your guru, you say, you know, I don't want to use the word. (laughs) (laughs) So guru is somebody whom you looked everywhere and found that he or she looks like the most qualified and most kind of trustworthy and dependent person in the whole world. That's your you select as guru. So if anybody can kind of uh, inspire you in this world, it should be that, because it's you who feels that this person is trustworthy and you know genuine and things like that. But then when you do the guru yoga, it's not just that guru but make it kind of, what you can say, um, mix it up in a way, you know, with all the enlightened beings, you know. Uh, your guru is, becomes the like Vajradhara or whatever, you know, the most enlightened person that you know about. And then feel that this is, you know, the embodiment of all the enlightened essence, enlightened beings. And then your guru, including all the gurus of the lineage, including, you know, all the Buddhas, Bodhisattvas, all together as, as one, that then you kind of, you use that as the guru yoga. And then you receive empowerment, you, you know, you make kind of heartfelt uh, prayers and things like that. So therefore, then you kind of, uh, you know, you are exercising to see things much more pure. And this is also an important thing because, you know, we have the, the habit of focusing on, on problems and, you know, on negative things, on impure things. So therefore, you know, it's very important part of the practice that we try to also train ourselves to see the positive side and pure side of things. Because we need to do that. We are seeing too many problems Always, this is the problem, that's the problem, this is not good, this is not good. Everything, all the world is a problem. (laughs) Yeah? It is like that in a way, but, (laughs) you know, but it's also, it's like that because we are 
we are used to, we are habituated to focus on the negative things. There are positive things also. You know. There are lots of positive things in the world, even now. You know. There are lots of positive things in America too. <laughs> so therefore, you know, you know, I, I actually like this film that uh, uh, Michael Moore made. Uh, the, I don't know whether it's his last or not, but I saw one of them. What? What to attack? What to? What was the name? What to attack next? No. What to? You, you have seen this film? Uh, you haven't seen this film? Uh, I've seen this film, and I've made everybody in Europe see this film. <laughs> <laughs> Huh? Where to invade next? Oh, yes. Where to invade next? <laughs> That's the one. <laughs> he carries American flag and then travels all over Europe, you know? <laughs> and then he finds some very, very nice things there. Some very nice things there. And then he says, where it comes from? And they says, it comes all from America. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, that's uh, beside the point. <laughs> so that's, uh, I, think, I think I have talked too much. <laughs> I think I'll stop here. And if you have any questions, you are most welcome. <laughs> yes. Yes. So <laughs> I um, I had the good fortune of uh, meeting His Holiness, Holiness Dilger Kinsey Rinpoche uh, in 1987. And I had the very, very strong experience of... Um, just seeing very clearly that this was an, he was enlightened. I, I really had the strong certainty, and it was it was not something I didn't really know anything about him, but it was something about the I don't know. I just had that very strong certainty. Um, and and one of the one of the problems in the the current world is that now we're able to we're able to read a lot of things. There are a lot of, a lot of books, stories, et cetera, et cetera, that have been published. And so I read some, I've read some things about Kensei Rinpoche's life, and there are things that have happened um, where I go, uh, uh, what? Um, not, doesn't really sound, that didn't really sound enlightened. Um, even even at the last visit with Changling Rinpoche, um, Rinpoche rec- recounted a story where it seemed like um, Changling Rinpoche was saying that Kensei Rinpoche and his wife bickered, had arguments. And so you go, uh, 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 
here, here's this enlightened person who I have, have still, still very strong uh, devotion to, a strong certainty. And then there are these relative things that come up. And so how do you, how do you deal with that? Um, you know, we live in, uh, in samsara. <laughs> so, so when we live in samsara, then, you know, the samsara is all over, you know. So, um, Rinpoche, I know very well, you know. Uh, his uh, his um, if there is somebody you can see or feel as enlightened, I think he's he's the one. Um, uh, his wife also is very highly, you know. Highly, um, highly practicing yeah, lady, uh, but she's not always easy. <laughs> Why not? But it's not, Chinchanabhachi never says anything. She can do anything and he doesn't say anything. But, you know, these things I think doesn't really matter. I'm sure Buddha, during Buddha's time also, there were lots of things happened around, you know. It's, it's a, you know, and also, there's a saying. There's a saying in Tibetan that uh, uh, it's better that you stay three valleys away from your teacher. <laughs> there is also some truth to it because if you are always nearby, you you will always have some problem, you know. If not the teacher himself, maybe his wife, or maybe his attendant, or maybe his followers, or maybe, you know, there is always problem, you know. People are samsaric beings, you know, so therefore, uh, like that. Uh, and uh, I think it's very important also, to, as I said before also, you know, uh, it's not that, you know, um, uh, people who are very highly realized people, it's not that they have, they have like, uh, they're not like uh, otherworldly, you know, they are human and lives in a human community. So I have to deal with all the human things and lots of difficulties. People always uh, 
find faults. You know, there is, it's not always easy to be a teacher also. (laughs) Many times, I'm not really a teacher, I'm just, you know, the lowest of the low and the, you know, the worst of the worst teacher and uh, and uh, I don't treat people as my students, I treat them as my friends. Uh, but uh, many times, you know, there's uh, whatever I say or whatever I do, it's a problem. <laughs> <You know? laughs> If I say something, it's a problem. If I don't say something, it's a problem. <laughs> if I do something, it's a problem. If don't, it's also you know. Sometimes it's like that. You know, it's like that. <laughs> Can I ask another question? Yes. <laughs> if others don't have any questions. <laughs> okay. Yes. Okay. So, in um, in the jewel ornament of liberation, uh, and the Kampopa talks about how to um, relate to spiritual friends, and says that um, uh, the ordinary teacher, an ordinary person, who teaches you the Dharma. Is, is greater than the Buddha, is, is more important than the Buddha because they're the person that you're connecting to. So how do, you, how do you relate to somebody, how do you view somebody as Buddha even though they're clearly an, an ordinary person? I think... I think um... What he's saying is not that, you know, his quality is better than Buddha. It's not like that. But uh, ordinary teacher, a genuine, good ordinary teacher, ordinary means like, a, you know, samsaric teacher, is, is more important or more, because we can't, we can't connect with the Buddhas, no? Buddha is not there now, or at least we can't see Buddhas. But we can see this teacher, and we can connect, and we can learn. So therefore, for us, he or she is, uh, in a way, more important than the Buddha. It's not saying that he is more qualified than Buddha. Of course not. But for us, you know, and if that person is a genuine kind of a practitioner, then you know we can learn a lot. Any other? Yes. Are you free at all at any point to go back to Tibet to visit your 
place where you were born, and also as just a follow-up to that, we talk about, in practice, we talk about knowing what's inside of us. So things like anger. So I, when I see you, I see a person who was removed from their homeland. And yet, it's like a, like a two-edged kind of thing for, for me and the Dharma, in the sense that had the Chinese not done what they did, I probably never would have seen you. So it feels a little strange in that way. In one sense, I'm very, very grateful for having learned of the Dharma. And I'm just wondering how you feel. <laughs> you know, everything has many different aspects, no? So it's like that, you know. I don't know. It's a it's a good thing for you to see me or not. But <laughs> I go. I went back only once in two thousand and five, uh, and even that time, I didn't get visa from India or even from Nepal. They say lamas are not welcome. Then I went to Hong Kong and I sent some Chinese people uh, to get me a tourist, uh, you know, just a tourist visa to China. So then they said I should go in my, you know, not in robes, but in, you know, in ordinary clothes. And I bought a pant. Uh, but since I've never wore a pant, I didn't know how to measure it. So when I actually put it on, I couldn't put it on because it was it didn't it didn't it didn't work, you know. So I I just went like this, and they they didn't say anything. It was okay. I arrived. Yeah, I arrived Chengdu. And then uh, my monastery had informed people in, in the offices in, in, in Tibet and so in Kham, so it's not in Tibet, it's in China. So I went there, so it was okay, you know, the seven departments came to help me like intelligence and police and, you know, religious. I don't know, seven different departments came to help me. (laughs) So I was there for one week in my monastery, a little bit nervous because on on top of this, you know, my monastery, some of the campus in my monastery made a video CD with lots of songs, you know. Uh, first about myself and you know welcoming me and things like that. But then one song on His Holiness Dalai Lama, not with his picture, but with the picture of Shandrasik. Everybody could see it's him. Then on Karmapa, and, you know, and all kind of things. Lots of songs, video. 
And as soon as I arrived, they gave me it in your honor. I said, oh, thank you very much. But there was nowhere I could see it. And then after some day, I came to town and then I saw this and I was shocked because there was like, you know, long song, very nice song about Dalai Lama, but one about Kamapa there with saying that, you know, he kicked on the head of the communist and uh, went over the Himalayas. <laughs> that was kind of the real wording, you know. I was so afraid. I said, you know, don't, don't give this to anybody, you know, keep it totally secret. And they said, we already sold 2,000 copies. <laughs> So I thought, you know, they would close the monastery and arrest all of us. But it didn't happen. <laughs> so later on, they, they called the singer. And they said, you know, what is this? The singer said, I don't know. I don't understand what is written there. I just was told to sing it, so I sang it. <laughs> so then they, they called the Kempo, who wrote the song. And then he wrote a commentary on this, 50-page-long uh, commentary, making it very Buddhist philosophical. <laughs> and he didn't get arrested. So it was very lucky. But that was my last visit. <laughs> I didn't dare to visit after that. But it's re- revived. My monastery is revived. Um, I send money every month, but last year I couldn't send any money because the money I send, they return it. Not allowed. But now I found another way, but I wouldn't tell you. <laughs> we have rebuilt the monastery. We have Sheda now, we have Dripta now, we have a school, we have a clinic. They nearly closed the school, but now it's it's okay. But it's becoming very, now it's, at this moment, it's becoming tighter and tighter every, every day almost. Yeah. So nobody knows what will happen. But I'm... Free. <laughs> yeah. So. <laughs> it's a little bit cloudy, he says. <laughs> Anybody? Any more question? No? I think that's enough, no? So thank you very, very much. Thank you.